Hello, and welcome to Setting the Scheme. I'm Ben. I'm Elijah. And that's it. It's just the <laughs> two of us, because Doug is still at camp, and, uh, well, Tristan, Tristan, I don't know where you are, but it's okay. We have a guest. It's Amara. Hi. Welcome that's... back, Amara. <laughs> Glad to be back. Glad yeah, to be back. how have you been? I've been good, you know, just living life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Amara's been a guest before. The last time she was on was Harriet, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and for that one, you had a lot of notice. And for this one, we <laughs> asked you today if you wanted to be on. So <laughs> thanks for being on, Amara. Yes. Glad to be yes. here. It's summer vacation, so I have nothing to do at all. <laughs> all Excellent. right. But uh, yes, we do appreciate you coming on uh, such short notice. And I feel like we got an interesting movie to talk about. Uh, Elijah, I know you were the one that kind of uh, suggested this film. So why don't you tell the folks, what did we watch this week? Okay. The movie is uh, 2012's Beasts of the Southern Wild. Um, It's uh, directed by Ben Zeitlin, written by him and Lucy Alibar, uh, based apparently on a play that she wrote. Um, the two main actors in it are Quivenginate, or sorry, Quivenginate Wallace and Dwight Henry. Um, and it also stars uh, Levi Easterly and Gina Montana and a bunch of other names that I don't recognize. Um, this was not a star-studded movie. I didn't recognize a single person in this movie. Uh, and the two main actors had no prior acting experience at all, which we'll talk about later. Um, but that's what we watched. What are the ratings? Well, uh, this movie <clears throat> uh, rated out pretty well. Uh, it's got uh, 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb. Um, Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is at 76%. Tomato meter at 86%. Uh, Metacritic is also 86 And because it's our favorite, Common Sense Media has it as uh, at a 5 out of 5. Um, Google audience rating is 4.3 out of 5 stars, so generally well um, received film uh, though that's not the case for everyone um, but before we get into that uh, none of us have seen this right right all right first time giving and by yeah. the way real quick that was a joke about common sense media yeah uh, <laughs> they seem to come up a lot um, but their method of, of grading films is very confusing um, and we don't get it we anyway, just don't have common sense. Yeah, uh, I guess not. Uh, but yeah. Uh, does anyone want to try and uh, explain what happened in this movie? Yeah. Um, this movie is kind of, it's its not short. Uh, I don't remember the runtime. It feels kind of long. It's about 30. It's actually, okay. Um, it's actually pretty plot light though. Mm-hmm. Um, but it stars... Uh, Quivenginate Wallace as a little girl named Hush Puppy who lives in a bayou community in a fictional island. I can't remember the quote-unquote real name of the island, but they call it the bathtub. Everybody who lives there calls it the bathtub. Um, So it's a a fictional location um, attached to real locations where they live. And Hush Puppy lives with her dad played by dwight henry his name is wink um and he's very sick he's dying and hush puppy's mom is not around 
So she's faced with the possibility uh, that her dad will die and she'll have to take care of herself. And that kind of slowly dawns on her throughout the movie. Wink spends most of the movie being really hard on her because he wants her to be able to take care of herself. Um, the first big thing that happens in the movie is there's a big storm, um, tropical storm that comes through and wipes out a bunch of homes. Uh, but the people remaining in the bathtub are uh, stubbornly sticking to their homes. This is the place they love and it's where they want to be. So they're trying to rebuild and they're just trying to make it through what's going on. There's also a lot of um, talk of uh, ice caps melting and it's releasing these creatures that were frozen in the ice. They call them Aurochs, which by the way is a real thing. We'll talk, we'll talk about it later. Um, it's sort of a real thing. Um, I, I read up on it a little bit. Um, and so the, the whole movie, if there's a timer, it's those Aurochs because they're released from the ice and they start moving over the land and eventually they do get to the bathtub. Um, and while the, while the people in Hush Puppies community are trying to, to survive, um, eventually uh, Wink becomes convinced that uh, in order, for, in order to help the waters recede so that they can kind of continue to rebuild, they need to blow the levee <laughs> so that water will rush in there um, and, and help uh, even out their, their situation. <laughs> so he does. <laughs> What'd you say? He wasn't wrong. Right. Um, so he, <laughs> he goes, he gets his operation and goes and blows a hole in the levee and the waters start to go through. Um, but that ends up inviting trouble and folks come in from the other side of the levee who now for the first time seem to be uh, at least outwardly caring about these people who live in the bathtub uh, for the first time. And really, they're just kind of taking them away from their homes. Um, they start to give Wink some uh, some medical attention because he's dying. Um, they're trying to take care of Hush Puppy, but uh, everybody hates it. They want to leave. They want to go back home to the bathtub. And eventually they do. Uh, Wink and Hush Puppy uh, part ways because Wink finally is just like, I'm dying and you've got to go somewhere else and somebody else needs to take care of you or you take care of yourself because I can't do it much longer. She uh, ends up hitching a ride on this boat with some of the other kids and she goes to this bar where she meets a cook that she's convinced is her mother. Uh, she has a nice dinner with her, but then says she can't stay. She's got to go home. Uh, she leaves, goes back to the bathtub. And that's when she finally confronts those Aurochs that have been coming the whole time. The Aurochs scare the other kids, but she stands her ground um, and has a, a cool scene where she kind of uh, courageously stands in front of them. And they finally just turn around and leave. Um, and then she goes and takes care of her dad um, they have an emotional scene and dad dies. <laughs> um, but Hush Puppy and her community give him a, a nice funeral like he wanted, send him off in a boat. Um, and then she's uh, presumably able to take care of herself pretty well because that's what dad's been teaching her to do all six years of her life. That's my, that's as thorough a summary as I can give this one. Oh, no, that was very good. Um, yeah. Uh, so I feel like we all kind of ran into this, um, but this film was not what we expected <laughs> at all. Um, I know I myself, um, I think I had read the description on IMDb, maybe even seen the trailer and like thought it would be some 
uh, almost like fantastical setting. Uh, I don't know. What did you guys think coming in? Yeah, I was expecting like a so like a solo adventure film through a fantastical world, something like a Wrinkle in Time, mm-hmm. like very kid friendly and magically, and then got hyper realistic homelessness. So a little shocking in the first five minutes. I was like, oh, this is yeah. not what I thought. <laughs> yeah, there's. I saw way more intestines than I predicted I would see in this movie. Uh, yeah, um, every time that there was a dead animal, I was like, oh my God, please don't eat it. Please don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I actually, I remember seeing the trailer when this came out and thinking that it looked really fascinating and wanting to see it. And I never did until today. But, um, and, and I've talked about this with Ben a lot on and off the podcast. Uh, we both love fantasy fiction stuff. Um, and we've, we've talked before on the podcast about some of the problems with fantasy fiction. Like I love it, but it's got issues. And one of the issues with fantasy fiction is that when people write a new fantasy story, they always default to some kind of Lord of the Rings ripoff. And I love the Lord of the Rings more than just about anybody, but, um, there's already a Lord of the Rings and, um, we don't need a hundred ripoffs of it. And so much fantasy feels like it needs to be pretty European, pretty white, for no reason. And from the trailer, this looked like a fantasy story that centered black people, not white people. And it looked like a rural American kind of setting, not like a stereotypical fantasy medieval Europe setting. And I thought that's really interesting. And I would love to hear what this story is trying to say. Um, and I, I still stand by that. It is an interesting movie and I'm, I'm glad I got to hear what it had to say, but it is not what I thought it was. Yeah. All right. That's fair. It's kind of fantasy. Yeah, uh, there are definitely fantastical elements, um, at least mythological elements. Uh, yeah, like there are. The aurochs and uh, the bar at the end. The Elysian Fields, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, uh, not quite what we expected. Um, as far as the uh, reception of this film, though, uh, while generally well-received, there were several people who didn't like it. Uh, there was one uh, critic, I think it was the, yeah, the Chicago Tribune uh, said it was the most divisive film of the year. Uh, there is an author and activist named Bell Hooks um, who wrote a very negative review saying, uh, the vibrant scene in this film is generated by a crude pornography of violence uh, and calling Hush Puppy, quote, a miniature version of the strong black female matriarch, racist and sexist representations uh, have depicted from slavery uh, on into the present day. What do you guys think about that? Because I feel like for the most part, we, uh, even though it wasn't quite what we expected, we still generally enjoyed the film. But what do y'all think about that? You know, the stuff about Hush Puppy being the miniature version of this uh, trope mm-hmm. uh, that, that caricatures Black women that may be worth considering, but I'm still, this is not the first time today that we, because we talked about this before we started recording too. And that, she said, um, this movie centers a pornography of violence. Mm-hmm. I, the violence is generated by a crude pornography of violence. Yeah. And I'm, I've been thinking about it since you brought it up. I can't agree with that. 
last week, I think it was last week on the podcast. Yeah, uh, the hateful eight. We talked about the hateful eight. <laughs> if if that, I mean, that phrase pornography of violence, when, it, when you read that out loud, I thought the hateful eight. That's what that was. This was not like that. Yeah, I would say that I also disagree with the review in its like in what it says I disagree I think in the heart of it there's like maybe I can see where they're coming from but I definitely think that the film is more of a social commentary on how we perceive homeless people and those communities and like what community and family means and I think that it's transcendent of race which is why it's able to start to black people and not really feel like it's a a race movie so to speak so i don't i don't think that the things that happen to hush puppy happen to her because she's black i think it's more about classism than it is racism which uh, there's of course intersectionality and everything but on its head, it feels more about class than it does. Yeah, this movie does seem like it's focused more on poor protagonists. And, and that's kind of the central focus. Um, yeah, and, uh, I think one part that really kind of illustrates that uh, is uh, after Levy's break and they are uh, forcefully evacuated from the area. Um, like they start like saying hey y'all we need to get out of here and then it almost like immediately turned violent like uh wink and uh hush puppy are both tackled in the process and like it ends up being just this huge mess and Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah this movie does feel like um kind of a almost stinging response to the attitude from rich people that poor people need them you know like I'm I'm such a nice rich person I'm going to do what you poor people need me to do and I'm going to help you and be your savior this movie's kind of a little bit of a middle finger towards that attitude <laughs> yeah. yeah also yeah. to me unrelated but I I have to say something yeah of course that dress that blue dress that they put her in when she was in the homeless <laughs> shelter was so disrespectful she could not have looked more uncomfortable they yeah. tried to like put her in this dress so that she could be like a presentable young woman or whatever and it just it looked so bad it was too small like they cared nothing for it, it, it was like a stripping away of her identity and just yeah like, let's make her prim and proper but like she could not have stuck out more and they slicked her hair back it was so like bad that. yeah it was like yeah they they brought her in for her own good, so to speak. They literally say, this is for your own good. And they gentrified her. And uh, eventually they escape. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it really feels like a jailbreak. And like even um, Hush Puppy describes it as like being a prison. I don't remember the exact line, um, but she describes that place as a prison. And then they have a full on jailbreak and go back yeah. uh, to the bathtub. Just crazy most of the reception of this film was positive though speaking of those kind of better thematic elements of what's going on here most people had good things to say and this movie was nominated for four oscars Mm -hmm. it didn't win any unfortunately 
because uh, yeah. it definitely should have. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I believe it was the only movie that year that was nominated for Best Picture that did not win an Oscar. Right. And one of the Oscars it was nominated for was uh, Best Actress. Yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, Quinvent. Uh, Quivenchene Wallace, uh, the youngest person ever being nominated for uh, Best Actress, and yeah, I mean, I'll be frank, I haven't. Uh, I don't remember if Anne Hathaway won that or if she won Best Supporting Actress for uh, Les Mis, um, but I think she deserved the Oscar for this. Uh, and not curious because I don't remember which one it was. I think to be a first-time actress and to portray a level of the the complexity of the character, because there I feel like there is a lot going on in her little mind. You know, like her life is difficult by our standards, and then she's also fighting this fantastical war and dealing with the stuff with her dad and like those scenes are just like very it's it's I don't know it's it's something that you don't see very often from child actors Mm -hmm. yeah she is very charismatic and she puts I mean it's rare that you find a young a really young a child actor who can put that much into a performance I mean most of the time when you tell kids to read lines it's gonna be wooden you know (laughs) it's painful watching most children act but she's awesome yeah uh there's so much emotion and just everything that she does like even when she's not saying anything um like it comes through crystal clear uh with her facial expression just kind of how she reacts to everything yes voice over narrated the whole movie yeah yes like that's difficult voice acting is hard yeah yeah this girl that was five years old when she was cast right okay let's go ahead and talk about it yeah um so when they wrote the movie um they had this character in mind and they wanted uh they they sent out the casting call that's what it's called right you (laughs) theater people got to keep me on track (laughs) um and they they said they wanted uh, an African-American girl between the ages of six and nine. And she lied about her age because she was only five. Mm-hmm. And I think her mom the... lied about her age. Okay, yeah. And she got the audition and blew everybody away. And I remember I read from multiple sources that they said uh, part of the reason they liked her so much was because she had such an epic scream, my words, not theirs, mm-hmm. and because she could burp on command, all of yep. which she does in the movie. Yep. But she also apparently um, was learning to read really quickly. And um, I remember it might have been on the Wikipedia page that I read. uh, So did Ben. Uh, Somewhere I read that the thing that kind of sealed the deal was one day when the director was hanging out with her and just kind of as a joke said, throw this bottle at that guy. And she wouldn't do it because she didn't think it was right. And uh, something like that was the moment where he was like, all right, yeah, we made the right decision. She is the one. And they ended up uh, changing the script and rewriting the character to work more for the actress because they liked her and her performance so much. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember I looked up a couple interviews with her. And in one of them, 
she talked about how she sat next to the director at the computer while he was typing up some new lines for the character and she changed some of them to sound more like something she would say yeah yeah it's crazy good stuff hmm. i'll say and uh go ahead. i just said black girl magic <laughs> And the other lead actor, Dwight Henry, also didn't have any acting experience. So he owned a bakery across the street. Right. And he apparently auditioned kind of just for kicks and giggles. Mm -hmm. And they were like, they really liked him. And they uh, had trouble finding him to tell him he got the part because he was so busy working in his bakery. Mm -hmm. And he only agreed to do the movie when they let him work in his bakery by day as well. (laughs) So it's like... He was like, clearly this comes first. I'll be in your little movie, but let me work in my bakery. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then both of those actors went on to be in 12 Years a Slave together, which I haven't seen. Have you guys seen it? I haven't seen it. Not yet. Okay. Yeah. I've not it's, seen it either. Um, I think we mentioned that movie when we were talking about Harriet. Now that I think about it, I think we all said we hadn't seen it then either. Yeah. Um, it, the three of us and whoever else was on that episode. I don't even remember now. <coughs> but um I it was Doug okay yeah sounds right I don't know um but yeah they were in that and then uh Quivenjane Wallace was also in Annie the recent remake uh with Jamie Foxx which I also haven't seen I also I haven't seen, seen it either um it's it's cute if it, it, it feels different because they changed a lot of the songs that are like my faves but they added in some new songs which are great. And she's great in that too. Yeah. I think she, that was a very, like, that was when people started being like, oh, we need to actually learn how to say this actress's name right because she's <laughs> doing things. And oh, yeah. She has a lot going for her. She could be really spectacular. Absolutely. People need to leave her alone so they don't screw her over like <laughs> they do a lot of child actors. Just mm-hmm. leave her be and let her act when she wants to and stuff. Yeah. So, uh, if I remember correctly, she's like 17 or 18 now. Okay, sounds about right, yeah. I guess. Because this was, uh, so this, this movie was came 2012. out in 2012. Yeah. yeah. And she was nine. So, yeah. uh, so I know uh, coming into this film, we had all kind of pictured this as some kind of like fantasy or like kind of fantastical adventure. But where would y'all say this actually? can be classified in terms of genre because i don't know that fantasy feels quite right i okay this movie struck me as one. this is not a genre but it struck me as one of those movies that is like artsy for the sake of being artsy Mm -hmm. and like like i definitely think that it had a lot of valid social commentary but like the way that it was filmed, the way that it was presented, it was almost filmed like a, a, not a documentary, but like some sort of like hype, you know what I mean? Like that hyper-realistic, like really in their lives. There's no real plot. The script almost felt unscripted with how casual the conversations were. And there was honestly not even a ton of dialogue. There was like, I don't know. I don't know how, I, I don't know how to, describe it exactly but it felt like i don't know sometimes you watch those movies and you're like did they write the script or did they just be like here's the general idea of the scene go you know what i mean yeah it's one of those to make it just feel like it's like you're actually in their lives 
and the camera work was really shaky and (coughs) excuse me sometimes the dialogue was so quiet I had to turn it up to hear what they were saying and then something loud would happen and I have to turn it back down so that was annoying is is that kind of some of what you're talking about yeah and then and then like randomly the fantastic elements the mythological elements like came out of nowhere like there was one point where I was like okay we're we're dozing we're trailing off a little bit and then the aurochs like came with like fanfare suddenly across the screen and I was like wait what okay that's new that's different that's okay yeah the movie I think defies genre a little bit Mm -hmm. um it's I did not see the term magical realism in anything that I read about this movie Mm -hmm. but I feel like it applies a little bit it this story did kind of remind me of um Gabriel Garcia Marquez do you guys know who I'm talking about no no um well you probably read some of his stuff in school (coughs) excuse me he's uh he's known for the book 100 years of solitude which i have not read but i've i've read a lot about it and it's similar because it takes place in a fictional uh town where there are magical elements which is similar to the bathtub you know, it's a fictional town in a in in what is otherwise the real world. And f- from what I understand of 100 Years of Solitude, that's a s- similar thing. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez also wrote the short story that a lot of kids read in school called A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings. Did you guys read that? I did not. I was not much of a reader. <laughs> oh, well, were you forced to read it? Because a lot of kids were. <laughs> not um, that I remember. I read that story for three different classes throughout my education. Um, Of course, I also, one of those was in college and I, because of what I majored and minored in, it makes sense that I would have to read that again. But uh, that's, he's, he's kind of synonymous with magical realism. Like he'll give you a really realistic setting and then uh, something supernatural will happen and everybody's like, oh yeah. And that's going on, you know, like it's normal. When I think magical realism, I think Jane the Virgin. I haven't seen that. I'm gonna um, need you to explain that one. I've seen a couple episodes, but it it's 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 magical realism because like everything is in the real world. It's like set in Miami, but there are elements of magic that happen, but they're all like done in it's like <coughs> Her fantasies become real life because the whole premise of the show is that it's like a telenovela within a telenovela kind of thing. And magical realism is like a big part of like um, Latinx commu- community culture, culture, that's the word. Um, so like she, in her mind, it's super romantic if it like snows when you have your first kiss. And so she like, accidentally at some point has like shot a bullet through her ceiling and when she has her first kiss the like drywall starts to crumble on them but it like magically turns into snowflakes as it falls around them so it's like that's magical realism in my mind and they gotcha yeah and writers like gabriel garcia marquez um they are you know famous latinx writers that started this genre and that was kind of the idea like it's a it's a totally believable setting 
but then here's this old man with enormous wings and you know he's you know he lives he's around here too we uh we try to make money off of him he's just (laughs) he you know it's just the way it is and that's kind of the way this movie felt the bathtub is a fictional place and it's so isolated it almost feels like it could be another world but it is attached to the real world but then all of a sudden there's this stuff about ice caps melting and apparently (laughs) extinct critters were cryogenically frozen they didn't say that but that's what it seems like and then they start walking around and and everybody's like oh yeah the aurochs are coming that felt like magical realism it also i think is an element of like what communities look like when they don't have outside influences like the 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 kids there learn about this from like their version of school Mm -hmm. which is like there's no writing there's no textbooks it's all story-based it's like it's tribal almost Mm -hmm. so like the aurochs kind of represent like legends being passed down through generations which leads me to think that these people have been on this island they've been in the bathtub for generations and like none of them have left regardless of what's come Mm -hmm. and that is almost what the aurochs represent is things happening that could take you away from the bathtub Mm -hmm. all of those people have decided to stay which kind of comes into play at the very end the last thing she has to do before she decides that she's staying in the bathtub is face them off and then she goes, sees her dad, sees her dad off, and then she stays and like she's not really alone because she's got all the people here and like that's her new family now. Yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, kind of talking about uh, the end with the uh, aurochs, we also have um, Hush Puppy going to this other uh, essentially offshore bar called Elysian Fields. Uh, where a woman who is presumably her mom works. Um, in mythology, Elysian Fields, um, let me look this up and make sure I get it right. Um, but essentially it is... Um, it's the afterlife in Greek mythology. Yeah, for uh, specifically for gods and blessed mortals. Um, so I, like heaven versus river of sticks, all that, Hades. Right. Like, the opposites of each other yeah right um and it also requires a boatman uh to get to so it's kind of like a metaphor f- um for hush puppy to go uh across the river to uh elysian fields to see her mom to essentially just kind of have that one moment before returning to her life which i thought was interesting yeah and i didn't put it together until <clears throat> you read that trivia about the Elysian Fields that she does get there on a mysterious boat ride. Mm -hmm. She's trying to swim towards that light. She and the other kids and the, the guy on the boat picks her up and she's like, where are you going to take us? Where's this boat going? And he's like, it doesn't matter. It'll take you where you need to go. (laughs) Yeah. And, and then that's where they end up. And she finds the woman. She sure is her mother. Apparently it's canonically true that that was her mother, but they don't, really explain that much yeah because in the beginning of the film they don't really say what happens to her mother um just that you can see that she's not in the picture anymore um so they i think that they said like when her mom looked at her her heart beat so fast that it could burst and quote that's why she swam away so 
depending on your interpretation, her mom very well could be dead. Yeah. And that could be because depending there because there's that element of magic and fantasy did she actually get into a boat with a random man and end up at this random club and then magically still find her way home or is that all happening inside of her head and she's meeting her mom in this place that is like heaven representative and it's not actually her mom and then she's like no i have to like i can't stay like this it feels like a lot of agency for a six-year-old to have so like maybe most of that is a metaphorical journey that she's taking in her head Mm -hmm. maybe she had an out-of-body experience (laughs) she passed out while they were on the life saver thing what are those things called life raft yeah Yeah. sorry i'm i'm gonna get out of here with my head cannons now (laughs) but she also brings back the uh fried gator um oh yeah from the restaurant because she feeds some to her dad uh shortly before he dies yeah he tastes the ambrosia of the gods and then he dies (laughs) (laughs) it's like my time has come yeah y'all that movie it was weird it's a weird story Mm -hmm. but i liked it and it almost made me feel emotion and you know how rare that happens yeah that's that uh amara i really liked what you said earlier uh it felt like it was kind of like artistic for art's sake uh which i think really fits it Uh, i've been i think i found a way to kind of classify this in a genre uh, I don't think it's quite magical realism. I think it's more mythical realism, if that makes sense. Since I think there's such yeah. a heavy, uh, it leans so much on mythology, uh, specifically Greek mythology. Um, and I feel like that also kind of plays into like the, uh, like their version of school. Like that's how mythology was passed down. It was just yeah. oral tradition. It wasn't anything that was necessarily written down. So I'm going to go with mythical realism. I like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, And I do think this movie has a little bit of that artsy for art's sake kind of thing, um, which I don't necessarily consider. I don't know. I don't know if I hate it, but I don't necessarily consider it a good thing. Yeah, Yeah, I don't always love it. I don't know. If it's done well. I do wish the camera work in this movie was a little less shaky and that the dialogue was a little easier to hear in some of those scenes. Um, and maybe the, maybe some of what's in this movie could have been cut out without losing any of the meat of the story, but I still liked it overall. It's like, there's, there's a trend in these artsy for art's sake movies where they're less about a plot and more about a story, which I know those two words feel like synonyms, but it's, it's less about like, this happens, here's the climax of like, start rising action climax falling action resolution it, it doesn't follow that arc so much as it's just like let's throw ourselves into the lives of these people and watch a story unfold within the few weeks that we see their lives like it there's at the beginning of the movie there's not a clear destination of where it's going to end which i think is like common for a lot of movies especially reading the the synopsis i definitely thought her dad was going to like die sooner in the movie and it was just going to be a journey of her finding her mom and it was very much not that it was just like watching her kind of live her life and see what life is like in this community that her dad has like built and they're part of 
Mm-hmm. And so much of the movie <clears throat> is her dad being hard on her, but also like sometimes over the top encouraging of her because he just wants to make sure that she is strong enough and smart enough to take care of herself when he's gone. Um, he trusts the other people in their community in the bathtub to take care of her too. Like at one point he says, if I don't come back, walrus is daddy. <laughs> wow. Um, it's almost like it's less about her actually being strong enough and more about like giving her the confidence to think that she's strong enough. Yeah. Because the way that their community is set up, like she's the only kid, as far as I could tell, who could trace which one of the other random adults was actually their parent. Like even at that dinner scene, all the other kids were like randomly eating under the table and she was like up there with her dad. Yeah. So the, the community is just like, okay, here's a bunch of adults that live on this island. Here's a bunch of kids. It doesn't really matter who belongs to who, but because she like had her dad, he's like teaching her these things like, yeah, you're strong enough. You'll survive without me. And you know that now. So. Yeah. I love stories about something like a parent-child relationship or some other dynamic where you see one generation trying their hardest to take care of the next generation and just make sure that they're walking into a situation where they're going to make it and, and probably do better than we did, you know, kind of that kind of thing. Um, I've said many times, the road is one of my favorites. Um, and that that does a similar thing. Uh, the movie Cargo, I don't think we've ever mentioned it on the podcast, but that's a similar thing. Cargo with uh, Martin Freeman. And I recently read The Giver by Lois Lowry for the first time because uh, I did it with my students and I had to read it before they did to know what was happening. Um, <laughs> and there's there's a similar thing happening in The Giver with the generation before wanting to help this up and coming generation and just make sure they have the strength and the courage to do what they need to do and make it in this world. I love those stories. And I think uh, Beast of the Southern Wild does that really well. And it's one of the really strong points of this movie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. At the core of it, it is a father-daughter movie about what is family and relationships. Yeah. Also, I want to mention that scene when she actually confronts the Aurochs at the end. Because the whole time, like in the beginning of the movie, the big problem is the the coming storm. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, the whole rest of the movie is them recovering from the storm. That storm really wrecked their community. And uh, it won't be the last one. You know, they know that more storms are coming. Floods are coming. There's problems from the mainland, potentially. There's the Aurochs. And I feel like the Aurochs might have just been in there as just a symbol of all of those things, just kind of summed up. Like, here's all the things that could be coming for you. Are you going to be ready for them? Yeah, that's what I felt like. It was just like obstacles getting closer and closer. And her facing it down is like, okay, I've learned from my dad. I've met with my mom. I finally have everything I've needed to feel like an independent person. And so now I'm like facing down obstacles and I'm like, I got it. And she's like, you're my friend, kind of. So it's like a bittersweet acceptance of all of the beautiful and also difficult things that life has to has to offer. Yeah, she, she said, you're my friend, kind of. And that's uh, what's... Is that her saying, like, you know, it's not so bad. I mean, we're going to make it. Yeah, like, you know, know, bad things happen, and it's like, this is bad, but also, like, I learned from it. 
I don't yeah. know. I feel like that's just what life is. It's like things are good depending on how you look at them and like not even things that are bad can have positives to them. Like everything's kind of just like, yeah, I guess, you know? Yeah. And I love that Wink watches that exchange. He's um, he's in there, you know, what the building they're living in right now. I don't know if it's really their home. I don't know if it's the same building they were in before, but um, he's in there really on his deathbed. You know, he's about to die and he's spent this whole movie just trying to make sure that his daughter can take care of herself after he dies. And he sees um, this exchange happen from where he's laying on his deathbed and he sees her stare down these creatures like it's nothing. And, and he probably can't hear her, but she says, you're my friend kind of, I got to go take care of mine. You know, um, he watches her handle what life has to throw at her. It's almost permission he needs to be able to die. Right. Yeah. So he gets to die at the end knowing that she will be able to take care of herself. Oh man. I love that. That's so good. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. It's, it's, it's got layers. It's deep. You really got to dig It's like an onion. It's like an onion. It's got layers. Or a parfait. It's like a crab. (laughs) You got to beast it and then get to the meat. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, if no one has anything else to say, I think it's time we score this sucker. All right. uh, If this is your first time listening uh, to Setting the Ski, we use a pretty simple scale here. Uh, It's just 1 to 100. Uh, You can kind of think of it like an American grade scale. That's what we do some of the times. a hundred means that it's perfect, it has no flaws, and a one means that uh, it is just an irredeemable pile of turds. So, who wants to go first? I'm going to give this movie an 85. <clears throat> and the main reason it's losing points is just because of the, you know, some of the kind of, like we mentioned, the shaky camera work and the dialogue is too quiet sometimes. And sometimes it just feels slow. Uh, some slowness is necessary, but I think there are times when maybe it could have been curtailed a little bit. So it loses points, but I still think this is a great movie and I would totally watch it again. You read my mind because that's exactly what I'm giving it to uh, an 85 uh, for really the same reasons. Um, I really enjoyed this movie. I cried a little bit at the end. Um, and uh Vincent A. Wallace and Dwight Henry were both incredible. Um, I feel like there, it was a little confused in terms of like where it wanted to fit in genre-wise and a little too artsy, but still very well done and an incredible film. Yeah, I, I do. I do definitely agree with some of these too artsy complaints. I don't think the genre thing is a mistake, though. I think this movie. It, it fits in a weird little niche between genres where you're not sure what to call it, but I really think that's what it was going for. And I think I that's mean, a win. Maybe, but it's a, it's a weird niche. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, after listening to you guys, I will add a point to what I was originally thinking <laughs> and I'm going to give it a 78. So a high C. That's pretty good. I kind of base like 7.5 that's where i put like interstellar i just like that movie was like long and boring and i was like not into it and i definitely would never watch it again don't tell tristan <laughs> someone paying me a lot of money to watch it again 
And this movie feels like, I don't think I would watch it again, not because it was necessarily bad, just because it was low. There was not like a, a compelling plot that is like, oh, I got to see this story again. It's just kind of like a day in the life, a peek in, which was interesting enough to watch. If I was grading the actors, they both get A's, but like the story itself. And then the, I didn't, I don't love the overly artsy thing it's it's unique for sure and i'm glad i watched it but i don't necessarily need to watch it again um i'm glad both of those actors were in it and they got their starts into acting and have gone on to do other really awesome films other oscar nominated films like good for them um but yeah high c for me high c all right well, uh, after plugging that into our patented scoreometer, <laughs> uh, we get a final score of an 82.67. So, yeah, it's a pretty solid movie. Solid. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that is it for Beast of the Southern Wild. But you know what we're doing next week? We're getting really into David Fincher um, because this coming up week and the next week are both David Fincher films, uh, which I just noticed. But at this point, I'm not going to change the schedule. So cool. We're <laughs> hey, Ben, about... what are we watching next week? I'm glad you asked. Uh, we're going to start our uh, little David Fincher marathon um, with this 2014 movie, Gone Girl, uh, starring Ben Affleck, uh, Rosamund Pike, Neil Patrick Harris, Tyler Perry, and a whole bunch of other folks. Uh, I think it'll be a fun time. Um, but yes, uh, thank you all for listening uh, to us talk about Beasts of the Southern Wild. Amara, thank you for again for coming on on such short notice. Uh, glad to be here yeah uh but yeah uh, be sure to keep up with vider media and all the cool stuff that we do uh we've got new episodes of setting the skein every wednesday and also follow us on social media at vider media um but until next week i'm ben i'm elijah and i was amara and tristan will hopefully be back next week but until then we were setting the skein and i hope y'all all have a great week